Well, good morning. Uh, I hope you can see from uh, your sermon title for today that I have a happy sermon for you on a gloomy, uh, cloudy Sunday. I'm, well, gloomy for me because our picnic got canceled. Uh, But I have good news about the coming messianic kingdom and the new heaven and new earth. That's where we're going to get. But first, uh, just to tell you a little bit about where we are, I'm going to do a survey sermon through Isaiah chapters 58 through 66. And uh, just to let you know where I'm coming from, imagine for a moment that you were to visit Niagara Falls. Uh, I've been there one time in my life, and uh, it is stunning. It's amazing. Uh, I understand that, uh, I think it's, I looked it up online, and uh, they claim that over 750,000 gallons of water per second come over the, the three falls that make up Niagara Falls, and uh, the, the water falls about 150 feet, and when it hits the bottom, it's so powerful that mist rise, and you can see the mist for miles and miles away. I was reading a New York Times article a few months back, and there was a businessman who, uh, who lives in Buffalo who claimed that from the seventh-story office window of his office, uh, 20 miles away, he could see the mist of Niagara Falls rising on a clear day. And if you've ever been there, you know that the national parks have some hiking trails around that, and you can go hiking around the area and just be amazed on a hot summer day at, at how far away you can be from the falls and still feel the cool air and even get wet being misted by all the mist that comes down. It's an amazing experience. But imagine for a moment if you were able to do a hike uh, up near the falls, and you were actually able uh, from your vantage point to reach out somewhere near the top of the falls, to reach out and to try and fill your water bottle with the water that's coming off the falls. It would just rip the water bottle out of your hand. That's how powerful it is. And that's a little bit of what I feel like this morning doing a survey sermon, but even this whole series, trying to preach through Isaiah. There is so many amazing things. There are so many amazing things in Isaiah, and I've had to skip over some amazing passages. There's been some other paragraphs uh, that are amazing that I've only been able to allude to and not read and go through in detail. And for that reason, as we're nearing the end of our study in Isaiah, I just want to encourage you, if you don't have a a Bible reading plan where uh, you're trying to set aside time once a day to spend time reading and studying maybe two or three chapters of a, a book of the Bible. If you're not doing that right now, I want to encourage you, carve out some time to just read through Isaiah. Just try to read two or three chapters a day at 66 chapters. Just read through it this month. I think you'll be blessed. It will be, uh, it'll be well worth the effort for the good of your soul. And I do want to take this opportunity as we come to our last survey sermon in Isaiah to just review for you the five major uh, themes that we've seen in the book as we've gone through it. The first and most important theme in Isaiah is who this great God is, who is the creator of all things and Israel's God. Uh, Isaiah's favorite name for God in this book is the Holy One of Israel. In Isaiah 6, we saw that God is holy, holy, 
holy. And in ancient Hebrew, they didn't have exclamation points like we do. They also didn't write in all capital letters to make a point like we sometimes do in social media or online. Instead, they used repetition to make that point. And threefold repetition means that God is perfectly holy. And the idea of that Hebrew word for holy means that He as the Creator is separate from His creation. God is not dependent on anyone or anything for His existence, and He is also separate from evil, morally speaking. He's not tempted to do evil, He doesn't do evil things, and He doesn't tempt other people to do evil. He is all-powerful, and He does what's good for His people, even if that means disciplining them for their sin. Isaiah ministered as a prophet during days, not only in Judah, but even just if you study the ancient Near East in the 700s B.C., you see that they were days that were particularly chaotic. They were full of political upheaval, much more than the previous century had been. And in a similar but less intense way, I think we're also living through uncertain times. And who Isaiah reveals God to be has been a comfort to me. Even though it seems like the world is very chaotic, there is someone who is in charge and He is all-powerful, He is all-good, He has a plan, and yes, He does allow some bad things to happen, but in time He redeems those things, He has a purpose for those, and He is the Holy One of Israel. Uh, The second big theme that we've seen in Isaiah is the theme of judgment. God will judge individuals and nations, and though He has chosen the, the descendants of Abraham to be His special people, He is the God of all people, not just Israel. And He will bring every individual and every nation to account. All people will answer to Him. And one of the things we saw in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, if you remember, I know that's months ago now, we've been away from that for a time, but in the first 39 chapters, we, we received a heaping helping of judgment. There was a lot of judgment passages, and uh, they're a reminder to us that our sins are serious. Our sin will find us out. If we don't find a remedy, our sin will destroy us, and those passages were good as a sober reminder for us. The third theme in Isaiah is the theme of hope and trust. Now, you can't read through Isaiah and see what Judah was going through and see what the prophet says to the people. You really can't read through it paying attention and not be challenged with the question, well, who am I trusting in? Where am I placing my hope. We all have a tendency to turn from hoping in God and trusting in Him to scatter our hopes into everybody and everything around us, and we pay for it in the trauma our souls experience when our misplaced hopes let us down. And in Isaiah, you see that same dynamic that we experience on an individual level. You see it happening on a national level with Judah. They scatter their hope into almost everybody other than the Lord, the false gods, human kings, if not their king, kings of other nations, and they pay for it. They pay a high price for doing so. And so, as we've been going through Isaiah, we've talked about this subject of hope and placing your hope in the right place. We've contrasted it. We've talked about not placing your hope in the wrong things that will eventually let you down. But even when we've talked about placing our hope in God, we've been very specific about it. It is not enough just to know what the promises of God are. You also have to choose whether or not you're going to believe in them, whether you're going to act like they're true or not. In his book, Trusting God, Jerry Bridges says, 
Trust is not a passive state of mind. It's a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold of the promises of God and cling to them. And so, a major theme as we've gone through Isaiah has been the theme of uh, who you choose to trust and where you're placing your hope. Now, the, the problem that I think we all struggle with, with misplaced trust, misplaced hopes, those are often good indicators of idolatry. That can uncover idolatry when we trust in the wrong things. And of all the sins that Judah committed, the one that got them in trouble with the Lord the most, the, the one that caused God to eventually send the Babylonian captivity on them, was the sin in particular of idolatry. Now, when we're confronted with that as American Christians, I think it can be easy for us to say, oh, Judah, how foolish can you be? God has been so good to you. He just delivered you in the last chapter in a way that I would think you'd never forget, and yet here you are turning your back on Him again. And we can just look at them and say, oh, you guys, you're hopeless. The problem with that is that there's a very important interpretive principle that you and I need to remember as we're reading through and understanding and interpreting Isaiah for ourselves, and that is this. The objective fact is that you and I are still more like Judah than we are like our Savior. Yes, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being transformed to be more like Christ, but we are still more like, like faithless Judah than we would like to admit. And if you don't believe me on this, just ask the Holy Spirit to show you uh, the sin in your life and where you turn from the Lord. I think He will be very uh, faithful to do that. Uh, one of the prayer requests that I make that gets answered quicker than any other one is, is I try to set aside time in my prayer life to begin with confession right? Maybe before I get to thanksgiving and praise and asking the Lord for things, I kind of need to make things right. And there are times where I know it, I come to the time of confession, and I can't think of anything to confess. And I'm looking back, and I'm thinking, surely I haven't been sinless for the last 48, 24, 48 hours. I don't think… I made it through the whole weekend without sinning. That doesn't seem very realistic. And so, I'll ask, Lord, show me my sin. I, I want to make things right with You. I want to keep short accounts. And I tell you, not that much time passes before the Holy Spirit starts helping me remember, oh my goodness, I did that. Oh, I said that. Right? And, and I think the Lord will, will make the point I'm making here, if you don't believe me, just ask the Holy Spirit to show you. We all struggle at times with still being more like faithless Judah than we want to admit, which means we still have more of a tendency to idolatry uh, than we realize. Now, to be clear, our tendency to idolatry doesn't manifest itself in bowing down to statues of Baal or putting little figurines of the gods up on our mantles at home. We don't do that. But the New Testament is clear that any created thing uh, can be turned into an idol in our hearts. And in particular, the New Testament likes to go after money. That's one of the idols that the New Testament likes to uh, highlight again and again and again. And idolatry is a big theme in Isaiah. It's still, idolatry is still alive and well in modern America, and as American Christians, we still are in danger of falling into that sin if we're not careful. Now, the judgment on Judah's idolatry happened to them as an example for us so that we would awaken to the fact that our idolatry is serious, our sins are serious, and will destroy us if we don't find a remedy. But even though our sin is serious, 
there is hope, and that's our fifth theme, the theme of hope. In spite of our sin, there's hope, and that hope that God gives to us in Isaiah, it comes in the form of a mysterious person. Uh, That person is introduced to us in Isaiah 7 as a child who will be born of a virgin named Emmanuel, which in Hebrew means God among us. Later on in the book of Isaiah, He is introduced to us as the preeminent servant that the Lord will send into the world. And we looked at, there are four servant songs that talk about who He is and what He will accomplish. Later on in history, a couple hundred years after Isaiah, the prophet Daniel tells us more about this mysterious person, and it's Daniel who calls him the Messiah. And so, we, we tend to refer to the prophecies in Isaiah about Emmanuel as messianic prophecies. And, uh, and, we, and we, this summer, we came to the height of those messianic prophecies when over the summer we looked at the servant song in Isaiah 52 and 53, where we saw that Messiah will voluntarily offer Himself as a guilt offering for the sins of His people. He will willingly be pierced through for our transgressions. He will willingly be crushed to death for our iniquities, but death won't be the end. At the end of Isaiah 53, we saw that He will rise again from the dead to receive great honor and glory and praise for the work He accomplished. And so, those are the five themes we've really been majoring on as we've gone through Isaiah. The Holy One of Israel, the judgment of nations and individuals, the themes of hope and trust, the pervasive human problem of idolatry, and the coming of the Lord's premier servant, the Messiah. And as I've preached through Isaiah, I've alternated between preaching uh, sermons that go in-depth in a particular paragraph or a chapter, and then doing survey sermons over entire multi-chapter sections of Isaiah, and it's a survey sermon that we come to today. Uh, It's our last survey sermon, a survey of Isaiah chapters 58 through 66. Now, the great turning point, the, the big hinge in Isaiah comes in Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, the best way to outline Isaiah is into two parts. In chapter 1 through 39, there's a lot of judgment. That's the predominant theme. In chapters 40 to 66, there's a lot of hope and comfort giving, given to those who will own up to their sin and listen to the Lord. And it's these last chapters I want to look at. Chapters 40 through 66, there's 27 of them, and I believe they break down thematically, very neatly, into three sections of nine chapters each. And at the end of the first nine chapters, there is a verse that ends with this statement, there will be no peace for the wicked. The second nine chapters end with this statement, there will be no peace for the wicked. And we saw that last week at the end of chapter 57. And then the third nine chapters end with a warning that God will send unrepentant transgressors to a place where there are worms that don't die and fire that is never quenched. And so each section of nine ends with a dire warning for the wicked, but in between those dire warnings, most of what's in there in terms of content is comfort and hope and deliverance and salvation for those who will turn to the Lord. Uh, Back in chapter 39, you have a very significant historical moment. You have the first time in Israel's history uh, where uh, Isaiah gives a prophecy about the coming Babylonian captivity. And so, because Isaiah has now informed the people that a captivity is coming, 
chapters 40 through 48 talk about how God will deliver His people from their captivity even though they're helpless. And that section is Isaiah 40 through 48. They really talk about salvation for the nation from the Babylonian captivity, and that's the first section of nine chapters. And I told you when we were in that, that's probably my favorite section of Isaiah, and I've found a lot of comfort for the years that we've been living through because uh, these are chaotic days, uh, but Isaiah lived through chaotic days, and the point of uh, chapter 40 through 48 is that God is sovereign over politics. He's sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign over kings, and He will deliver His people. The second section of nine chapters runs from chapter 49 to 57, and it talks about salvation for the individual from sin. The promise of Emmanuel voluntarily being pierced through for our transgressions and crushed to death for our iniquities, that's in this section. Uh, we saw last week when we finished up the section that even though God sees our wickedness, even though He sees how hard our hearts are and the secret uh, the, the secret wicked thoughts that we have, even though He knows all of that fully well, yet He still chooses to heal us spiritually. He, he chooses to heal our spiritual sickness and waywardness, and that's what we saw when we went through those last nine chapters. Today, we begin the, the final section of nine, and they have to do with the salvation of the earth from the effects of the curse. And there are a number of prophecies about the glorious coming messianic kingdom and later the new heavens and new earth. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. Messiah has already come once. He's become a guilt offering for our sins, just as Isaiah 53 prophesied. And He's coming back again to rule over all the earth in glory and to heal the earth from the effects of the curse of sin. Uh, we've already caught glimpses of this earlier in Isaiah. This isn't the first time Isaiah's talked about it, and so I want to show you some of the earlier glimpses we've caught and then also show you uh, what I'm talking about in the section we're in. So turn over, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 11. Let's start in Isaiah chapter 11. And I want to warn you, you are going to have to limber up your fingers this morning. We're going to be flipping to a lot of passages, but I put them all in chronological order, so you won't have to flip back and forth. We'll at least go in chronological order. I'm, I'm going to give you that. In Isaiah chapter 11, we read this starting in verse 1, and the shoot, the shoot and the branch are, have already been messianic terms earlier in Isaiah. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make decisions by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. Uh, a nursing child will play in the hole of the cobra, and a weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, 
For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the Gentiles, and his resting place will be glorious. Now, I already preached a sermon many months ago on this passage. I don't want to reproduce that here, but there are three things I want to remind you of from this passage. First of all, notice that Messiah is referred to as a shoot of Jesse in verse 1, but if you look back down in verse 10, he's then called the root of Jesse. Now, we know from a prophecy given hundreds of years earlier in, in 2 Samuel 7 that Messiah will be a descendant of Jesse through King David. He will be the son of David and a shoot from Jesse's family tree. But in verse 10, he's called the root of Jesse's family tree. How can someone be both a shoot and root in a family tree? No, no human being gets to be the root and shoot, right? You're either the great progenitor, you're either the great ancestor uh, from whom everybody else descends, or you're a descendant. You can't be both. Well, Isaiah leaves this as a detail in chapter 11 to be noticed by us and a riddle to be solved later. He gives absolutely no explanation about how this coming Emmanuel can be both the root and shoot of Jesse's family tree. But the riddle is solved in Psalm 110, and it's explained to us in detail by Jesus in the New Testament. Messiah will be a human being born of a virgin who is a shoot in Jesse's family tree and who will become the greatest descendant of King David. But he is also the Son of God who dwelled with the Father from eternity past, added humanity to His divine nature, and came to live among us. And so the riddle gets solved. But notice also that when you look at these prophecies about His coming and even the work He'll do, you know, judging uh, for the afflicted of the earth with fairness and uh, having uh, carnivores turn into herbivores, all this, Notice there's no time markers. Isaiah gives us no indication of when this happened. Even in his own day, you could hear this prophecy from Isaiah and think, okay, so is God sending him like next year or next decade or next century? Like when is this coming? And there's no indication in these verses that uh, the shoot of Jesse may not come for another 700 years and that even when he comes, the promises of what his kingdom will be when he brings it in in his fullness, those will be uh, thousands of years after his first coming. There's no indication. It's as if the prophets are looking at a distant mountain range and they can't see a deep valley in between the nearer foothills and the farther mountain peaks, right? And I like to call this prophetic perspective. It's not uncommon in the Old Testament to read prophets giving prophecies that are unmistakably about Jesus of Nazareth, but mixing elements of His first coming with elements that will happen in His second coming. That, that's very normal in Old Testament prophecies, and we're going to see that in some of the other prophecies we look at this morning. The third thing I want you to notice is that uh, is what's prophesied of Messiah's coming kingdom. A day is coming when Messiah will rule over all the earth, and He will bring in a new order, an order where righteousness dwells. Many of the effects of the curse will be reversed. Predatory behavior among animals uh, will be done away with. Venomous species of snakes uh, will be safe to be around. In fact, the entire animal kingdom will become so docile that toddlers can play with them and little children can lead 
animals. Mankind's collective effort to suppress the truth about God, primarily by just acting like He doesn't exist, just ignore Him, act like He doesn't exist, and act like this life is all there is. That's what we tend to do in art. You see it in our media. You see it in the, the fictions that we create, the television shows, the movies. You see it in education, no reference to God whatsoever. We just ignore Him. We just act like He doesn't exist. That will all be done away with. In the kingdom, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. There will be no more need for a global missions movement. There will be no more need for Bible translations for unreached peoples because all people will see the glory of the Lord with their own eyes. They will be able to look on Messiah who will reign physically, visibly from Jerusalem over all the earth. That's a picture of the coming messianic kingdom. But we also caught a glimpse of the later new heavens and new earth in chapter 25. Turn over to Isaiah 25, verse 6. Isaiah 25, verse 6. This is a picture of an era after the messianic kingdom. Uh, in Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, we read, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, He will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the funeral veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is a picture of what's later referred to in Isaiah and in the New Testament as the new heavens and new earth. Um, and in this future, death will be done away with. Uh, we need to say this as Christians. Death was not a part of God's original creation. Death only entered into the world because of sin, and there is a time when death will be no more. Jesus has conquered death and sin, and God will eventually bring about a new heavens, a new earth, where there is no more death or grieving over death. And so, we've already caught a glimpse of how God will heal the earth from the effects of the curse, how He will eventually create a new cosmos in which there is no death. But now, let's look in the section that we're in, the section of Isaiah we're in. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19. This is speaking of a future day when God will cause Jerusalem and the people of Judah to prosper. Uh, I believe this is speaking again of the new heavens and new earth. And in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19, we read this, "'No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor, the brightness, uh, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be over. Then all your people will be righteous.' They will possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. The smallest one will become a clan, the least one a mighty nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. This is a picture of an era after the Messianic kingdom. Um, this is, I believe, the new heavens and new earth. 
And a day is coming when the sun and moon will be no more, and the visible glory of the Lord will light the world, which means the people who can see the Lord in that day will not be consumed by God's holiness. In fact, we're told that all of them will be righteous, verse 21. Uh, In that day, people will not just be declared righteous through the atoning work of Christ on the cross like we are. They will actually be righteous in all of their behavior, public, private, and in secret, they will be righteous. In all their deeds and words and secret thoughts, they will be righteous, which means, and this was originally given to Judah, right? It means a day is coming when all the Jewish people will be righteous. They won't be given over to the idolatry that so marked them in the Old Testament and the atheism that seems to so mark the Jewish people in our own day. And in that day, every Gentile who's been grafted into God's chosen people by faith will also be righteous, which means if you were to apply it to the church, no more pastors uh, who fall into sin and scandal, no more church splits, right? No more divisions caused by uh, sinful behavior or poor doctrine, an eternal age marked by love and peace and unity that springs out of all the people in it being righteous, in fact. Uh, That's coming in the new heavens and new earth. But then turn over to Isaiah 65. There's another paragraph I want to show you in this section. Isaiah chapter 65, starting in verse 17, we read, "'For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind.'" Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought of as accursed." They will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people, and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are all the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them." I can't wait for this day that Isaiah speaks of to come to pass. Look at what will mark this era. It will be so good, and the first verse, that the former traumas and griefs and sadnesses won't even be remembered. We'll forget about them. We'll move on. There will be no more weeping or crying. The griefs and stresses of life that we just take for granted uh, today, all of those will be wiped away. But there's also a potential problem in this passage uh, that I want to be honest with you about, and it is a passage that throws everybody for loops, premillennial people, postmillennial people, all millennial people, it throws everybody for loops. And here's the reason why. In verse 17, we know from other sections of Scripture, it's crystal clear that there will be no death in the new heavens and new earth. But in verse 17, Isaiah speaks of God building a new heavens and new earth, So naturally, you would assume that everything in the paragraph down to verse 23 would be about the new heavens and new earth. But in verse 20, you have old men who live long lives. They have exceptional health spans, 
but presumably they still die. And then after reading about the old men, at the end of the verse, you have a case study of someone who dies before the age of 100, and they're thought of as accursed. Uh, it will be such a time of human flourishing that when someone dies at the age of 96, uh, everyone will look at them and think, there must have been some secret sin in their life for God to strike them, strike them down at such an unseasonably young age. You know, 96, my goodness, how young, you know. That's what it'll be like in the future. The problem is that there's still death in that passage. So, what's going on? How do we resolve this? Well, I believe we're dealing again with prophetic perspective. There's no time markers here, and I think what Isaiah is doing is picturing the coming messianic kingdom as part of a larger historical process that eventually leads into the new heavens and new earth. It's a step and a step up from where we are now. It's a step up in progress that will eventually lead to God creating a new heavens and new earth. Now, why is it that during this portion of the sermon, I have continually referred to the messianic kingdom and the new heavens and new earth as two separate eras? Where do I get warrant for preaching that way? Well, a number of passages, but turn over to Revelation chapter 20, and I'll show you. I'll show you from Scripture. Revelation chapter 20. I believe Revelation chapter 20 clarifies some of the questions we have about how and when these things Isaiah speaks of will come to pass. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, we're picking up the text in future history at a point where the tribulation has come to an end, Antichrist has been defeated because Christ has returned in glory. And after Christ returns in glory, listen to what John says will happen. Isaiah, excuse me, Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time." Then I saw thrones, and they who sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or His image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who is part of the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. What is spoken of in these verses is the glorious messianic kingdom to come. Satan will be banished. All the saints from old covenant Israel and all the saints from the new covenant church will be resurrected, given glorified bodies, and will reign with Christ. This is an era when many of the effects of the curse will be reversed. Carnivorous behavior in the animal kingdom will be done away with. Um, uh, people born during this era will still have sin natures, but they will be born into a world where, according to Isaiah 65, 
there will be no more miscarriages and stillbirths and infant death. Uh, People will live long and healthy lifespans well past the age of 100. I thought it was interesting back in Isaiah 65. Before I came to study Isaiah, a couple years ago, I read a a New York Times bestseller called Lifespan uh, by a man named Dr. David Sinclair. And David Sinclair is secular. He doesn't believe in God. He's not a Christian. Uh, But part of the theory of his book is that we should start treating the physical effects of aging as a disease And if we looked at it as a disease, instead of just zeroing in on heart disease or kidney disease or liver disease, if we we took a bigger approach, uh, we could do some things to help us with aging. And he goes through, he gives you some scientific, he gets deep into microbiology, but he gives you some scientific reasoning that shows you, hey, if we could just overcome a few of these problems, it's very realistic that people could live as long as trees. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting illustration. And then as I was studying Isaiah, I was like, oh, yeah, people can live as long as trees. The Lord will make it happen. People can have healthy lifespans much longer. And we believe that that happened before the flood, right, when you read in Genesis about people living long ages. Uh, And that will be the days of the Messianic kingdom. That will be restored. The work of people's hands won't be frustrated by futility. It will be an unparalleled time of human flourishing since the Garden of Eden. And yet, this golden era that Messiah brings about comes to a tragic end. Look at verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, which is Jerusalem. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil was, uh, who deceived was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever. So, the coming messianic kingdom will be better than any previous era of human history, but it ends in tragedy. Satan is released from prison. He deceives the nations. And this is the part that makes me angry. I just, I have an anger problem when I read this passage. What makes me so angry is that human beings who live during uh, uh, the, the best time of human flourishing on earth, according to Revelation, the majority of them, when Satan comes with his deceptions, will say with their actions, we think Satan is the good shepherd and we think Christ is the wolf. And that just makes me angry. And something needs to be done about that. And you know what? Something is done. God intervenes. Uh, look, at, uh, look at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing there before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds." Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. So God does intervene, 
and Satan is uh, bound and thrown eternally into the lake of fire, never to come back and deceive anyone again, but also people are judged. Now, in the Bible, you have to understand this, there are two judgments uh, of people portrayed in the New Testament. Uh, The first is the judgment seat of Christ. We sometimes call it the Bema seat, and it is primarily a judgment of rewards for those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 3, for example. We call it the Bema seat. But the great white throne judgment that we read about here is a judgment on those who reject God. And I want you to notice how the judgment works. People will be judged uh, equitably, fairly, objectively, according to the law of God. Um, And not only that, they've been given, all of us have been given the rubric ahead of time. It's not like God, uh, there's a day of accountability, there's a day of uh, of judgment coming, and God gave us a study guide to help us on the day of that exam. No, 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 no. He gave us the whole test. We can see every question that's going to be on the test. A great distillation of it is the Ten Commandments. If that's too many, you can just go to our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, love the Lord with all the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what's going to be on the exam. And notice that these people are judged according to their deeds because their deeds are evil. So when you put the bema judgment of believers together with the great white throne judgment, the picture that emerges is this: we are saved by grace, but damned by our works because our works are evil. But look at what happens after the great white throne judgment. God then will create a new heaven and a new earth even more glorious than the messianic kingdom. And as I read about this new heavens and new earth, see if there's anything you recognize from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Revelation chapter 21, "'Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth,' For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. So, I believe Revelation clarifies what Isaiah is speaking of when he talks about wiping tears away from all eyes and there no longer being any death. He is speaking of the new heavens and the new earth. And look at this detail recorded over in verse 22 of the same chapter. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city, listen to this, has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Does that sound familiar? Isaiah 60, right? Uh, The sun and the moon will be done away with, and the glory of the Lord will illuminate Jerusalem. I think what Revelation 21 is doing is making the details of when and how uh, what Isaiah says will happen will come to pass. The New Testament brings clarity to many of the wonderful prophecies about the new heavens and new earth given by Isaiah. And you have to ask the question, well, 
well, pastor, if the predominant theme is the coming messianic kingdom and the new heavens and new earth in those final chapters of Isaiah, why does God reveal those things to us? What's the purpose of prophecy? Well, I believe there's more than one purpose God has in giving prophecy, uh, but maybe I could illustrate it this way. I think one of the primary purposes for you and I is this, and I'll illustrate it uh, with… Um, with Brooke and I. Many of you know that Brooke and I are St. Louis Cardinal fans, and uh, with uh, the way that sports uh, being televised has gone with MLB TV and streaming rights being given to other channels, uh, I've become a rather spoiled sports fan. I have limited amount of time, and, and so many games are archived, so you don't have to watch them when they're live. And so, I confess, I like to let the Cardinals play games and then see if they won before I invest any time watching the game, because I don't have time to watch games that they lose. And having not grown up that, I didn't grow up with archived games. You had to watch it live, right? And, uh, and, and it's had a very interesting effect on me as a viewer. Um, when I check the score and then turn on the game, there can be things that happen in the ball game that would tend to make me angry, right? The ump making bad calls, uh, one of our pitchers giving up a silly home run, things of that nature. But it's okay. I don't lose my temper. I don't throw anything at the TV. The children are my witness. Uh, I I'm cool because I know they win in the end. In fact, part of the mystery is seeing how they're going to pull it off and how they're going to win. Well, I believe that you have a similar dynamic to what I experience as a fan in that illustration. I believe you have a similar dynamic going on with God telling us the way that things end. And the reason why is this. Um, there are many things in life that are disappointments. We face many defeats. Uh, you turn on the news, and we already know this, the news has a bias towards bad news. If it bleeds, it leads. That's been true since the 1800s. We already know that. Uh, but you turn on the news, and it's all bad news. You turn on the television to try and watch a program, and your morals get assaulted, if not by the program, by the commercials. You know, it doesn't appear that the world is getting better. But then you look in your own family, and there's bad news in your own family, and you go to the doctor, and there's bad news in your own body, and then you come to the church, and the church has amazing potential in Christ to be a place where believers love one another and help each other through the difficulties of life. And yet, if you read the New Testament, you have to admit, the church can be a bit of a mess, right? I mean, Paul's, he writes the Galatians, and it's like, why did I waste my time with you? You're like going off for nothing. Jesus writes seven letters to the churches in Revelation. In, in Revelation 1 through 3, he writes seven letters to churches. He's not even happy with five of them. And, and so, when, when, when it comes to church, there's often drama and difficulty, and there's conflict. And so, it feels like there's bad news everywhere you look. And in the middle of that, God has shown us the end so that we see who wins, so that we see that He will be vindicated, He will be proven right, and He will become the vindicator and rewarder of His people. Uh, all these prophecies help us know who will actually be on the right side of history in the end, and it's God's people. I think C.S. Lewis captures some of the hope that these prophecies give us when he wraps up the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, in his last book, the, the, uh, the Last Battle, which, by the way, is the most dystopian of all seven of those books to read. It's, it's hard to read. It just… I, I, my sense of justice is continually offended through the middle of the book, 
and it just seems like, it, you think like, oh, he's trying to paint a bleak picture, but then the heroes will overcome it. And it, surely it wouldn't get worse than this, and it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. But you get near the end, and I'm not going to spoil all of how things get redeemed, but in the very last paragraph of the last book on the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis wraps up the story this way. And if you haven't read them before, Aslan is a, a Christ figure in the book. He writes, And as Aslan spoke to them, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their lives in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. A day is coming when Christ will reign as King of kings and Lord over all presidents and prime ministers. A new heaven and new earth are coming in which righteousness dwells and where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Death itself will be reversed. Our souls and our bodies will be healed. Our faith will be made sight literally as we can see the Lord as His light replaces the sun and the moon and illumines all things and it will go on forever, and every chapter will be better than the one before. All these promises are ours through Christ if we continue to persevere in this faith. Let's pray.